Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Today, we're going to be talking to Chad Jackson, who is one of the stars of the new documentary, Uncle Tom 2. And I have to admit, uh, my husband and I watched Uncle Tom 2. Uh, we watched the first one, obviously, but the second one, it was really, if I'm being honest, very hard to watch. And for me, um, part of it was the language. And I guess you need to know that um, because as a Christian, I don't use that language and I usually don't watch anything that has that kind of language. But um, it was hard for me because I am old enough at 58 to remember when the black community was a lot different. Um, when I was growing up, there were vibrant black businesses. Uh, there were uh, families that had a very strong work ethic. Uh, the uh, parents were very involved in their children's education. Uh, the community elders watched out for you. If you were riding your bike down the street and you did something uh, that was disrespectful or you didn't speak to one of the community elders, uh, you could be assured that when you got home, you would hear about it. So I grew up in a very different era, very different time, a very different world uh, for Black America. Um, even though I am biracial and I grew up with my mother who is white or who was white, she's passed away now. Um, it was a Black neighborhood. And so, you know, I, I, I have the whole bicultural experience. And so I was very familiar with very hardworking moms that... Uh, had very uh, difficult jobs during the day, but at the night, in the nighttime that, you know, they were at home, they checked their children's homework, you were dressed for school appropriately, all of those kinds of things, you know, and now, now in Uncle Tom 2, the, the beginning of the documentary, there's a little girl that couldn't be more than seven years old, um, scowling into the camera and she's marching with Black Lives Matter and she's chanting and she's just very angry about, you know, um, I guess the state of Black America. And I don't remember it being that way, as I said. It's devolved into a situation now where we're depicted as being angry about everything and that we have a right to everything. Here's the thing. I grew up in public housing. And for me, well, I have to say, when I was talking about earlier about having grown up uh, in the Black community and not remembering this and seeing all the Black businesses, that was before I moved to public housing. Once I moved to public housing in 1973, that was a very difficult, that was a really, that was a line of demarcation for me because I started seeing some real discrepancies in the way that I was raised and what I was seeing now. Um, I was seeing a lot of violence towards my family. As I mentioned, my mom is white. I grew up with my mom and my aunt. They were white. And so I saw a lot of animus toward us. Um, I saw a lot of destruction of property. I saw a lot of just a lot of different social issues that were coming up that I had never really seen before. And I really didn't know how to address. And so there's been a shift. And so this whole kind of, you know, you owe me something. I need to get something from you. You have to put me ahead of everybody else. I get to jump to the front of the line is really disconcerting to me because I'll tell you what got me out of, out of uh, poverty and out of the hood. Um, and it was education. And that's why I've been such a strong proponent of educational choice, of homeschooling, of a lot of these issues, because that is what was the, uh, the level playing field for me. Uh, and anyone could do that. Sure, I was able to get grants and those kinds of things and financial aid and all of that stuff um, based on my scholastic record, uh, the hard work that I put in. Um, but, you know, those are things that are accessible to anybody. Uh, I don't feel like I need reparations or any of that kind of stuff to get ahead. And for a girl who grew up in public housing who did not finish her 
BA, by the way, I think I've done pretty well for myself. I've met the president of the United States. I've served on Black Voices for Trump. I am working on the daily with Colonel Alan West, who was our guest last week. Best job ever. Trust me when I tell you. I mean, I've done some pretty amazing things. Currently, I serve with an organization that works on pro-life, pro-family, pro-faith organizations. issues. Uh, So the heartbeat bill and some of those kinds of things, uh, I've been able to shape an impact in some small, small, small way. But I've done well for myself. And education was that issue. And so to see this angry mob sort of mentality where we're pictured as looting all the time and where we've got these animalistic urges that can't be controlled. You know, that's kind of how we were depicted um, in the olden days, right after slavery was over. And, you know, that stereotype maybe hasn't completely vanished in the minds of some. But when we do these kinds of things, when we are looting and burning down buildings and our own buildings, our own businesses that we built up and that we saved for, we're not doing ourselves any favors. How are we supposed to change the narrative when people see that sort of thing? Let's go back, as, as, as Colonel West said last week, let's go back to policing ourselves. Let's go back to that strict moral code that we had uh, when I was growing up. Let's go back to churches preaching the gospel. That's a novel uh, concept. You know, we used to talk about some very Th- strict things from the pulpit. I mean, things from the Bible. Uh, and and we don't see that anymore. We see people soft soaping the gospel because nobody wants to talk about uh, not having abortions, you know, abortion on demand, any t- all the way up to nine months, you know, those kinds of things. We don't hear enough uh, preaching about how that is a moral wrong and that we are killing ourselves and that we are falling right into the trap that Margaret Sanger had for us in uh, killing the undesirables and human weeds uh, and making it by necessity a cleaner race. So those sorts of things, uh, we're not doing ourselves any favors. Are we angry about some of the things that have happened? People that are unarmed that have been killed by the police and those sorts of things. Let's address that, but here's how I would address it. Let's put it this way. If Black Lives Matter really wanted to make a difference, rather than pocketing that money and buying a mansion or two or three for a very top level number of people, I would prefer to see us put that, what did they raise? Something like, you know, uh, 400 and something million dollars. Um, Where is that money other than in someone's mansion? Why weren't there scholarships set up at HBCUs so that we could have more black lawyers, more black correctional officers, more black judges, more black uh, criminal defense attorneys and people in the system, black paralegals from every strata of the whole justice system um, to affect change? That's how you do it. You do it through education. You do it through targeted, specific things. You don't sit around demanding that I get reparations. For what? Here's the thing. Yes, those things were really horrific things to happen. But as I have said often, what we would get now with the number of people that have at least one drop of black blood in them, uh, it would be like a 30 cent credit that, that AT&T gets when it settles with uh, people for something that happened or Wells Fargo or your bank or whatever. Um, and they do this mass settlement of people. You get like a 30 cent credit on your bill or a dollar or something like that. You know, does that really assuage your, your, your feelings about what happened during slavery. I mean, that was a brutal time. So I would rather be at the table. I would rather have input into the system. And this girl from the ghetto right here, right now in front of you, I am doing some of those things by being part of Black Voices for Trump and seeing this, that administration give billions of dollars to HBCUs. Yes, Trump with the mean tweets and the, you know, orange hair and bad, orange man bad. He was the one who gave uh, money to HBCUs. Uh, his administration setting up opportunity zones and those sorts of things for entrepreneurship. I can't tell you how many events I went to where I actually saw black business owners almost in tears talking about how much these uh, grants and business uh 
the money that they were getting from the government was so helpful in keeping them during the pandemic, being able to keep their doors open. So I would encourage the black community rather than this culture that we have now where we embrace this music that uh, glorifies this culture of hooking up and having as many kids out of wedlock as you can with as many women and all of this kind of stuff. Um, going back to that strict moral code that we had uh, right after slavery and through the early 60s, where you saw families that were intact, as Colonel West said last week, I think it was 72 to 77 percent um, that were two-parent households. All of those sorts of things. We can police ourselves. We don't have those base animalistic urges that cannot be controlled. We can control ourselves. And in fact, it's really akin to what we do as Christians when we devote our lives to Christ and we change from that old person to that new person. Um, it takes a little bit of effort, but we can be able to be in control of ourselves and change our actions and therefore change our destinies. As I've mentioned, our guest today is Chad Jackson. He is the star of Uncle Tom 2. And before we get started, let's watch a clip. Many of our people's minds have been whitewashed. If a Negro comes up to you and you turn your back on him, he's got to run to the honky. We're going to take time and patience with our people because they're ours. All of the Uncle Toms, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk. And when they slap, we're going to bow. And we're going to try to bring them home. And if they don't come home, we're going to off them. That's all. How are you? Great. Thank you. What we're covering is a very layered thing. We're talking about over a century of tactics, writings, education, journalism, music, film. All these different vehicles being used to carry out this ideology. Our guest this week is Chad O. Jackson. He is a professional craftsman and business owner in Dallas, Texas. He was featured in the 2020 documentary Uncle Tom. Uh, and uh, has gone on to become a co-producer, co-writer, um, and assistant editor and featured cast member in the newly released Uncle Tom 2. And last week we had uh, Colonel Alan West, who is also a featured cast member. So today we're going to talk about all things Uncle Tom. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hey, Marie. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. The Larry Elder produced Justin Malone directed documentary Uncle Tom uh, was a critic was critically acclaimed. What differences and similarities should we expect in Uncle Tom too? Uh, fantastic question. Um, so where Uncle Tom, the original film released in 2020, was a kind of conservatism 101 um, that really kind of gave a voice to the American black conservative. Uh, Uncle Tom 2 goes a bit deeper. It revisits historical events and historical figures and see and analyze very critically uh, to what extent were these events and figures um, beneficial to Black America or detrimental to Black America. Um, I liken it to a kind of Trojan horse. Um, many who are familiar with the Trojan horse story, uh, this, this horse was kind of decked out uh, it was painted beautifully and it was delivered as a gift. Um, the city accepted the gift um, because of how magnificent the, the horse looked. They let it into their gates and then um, soldiers came out of the horse and were able to open the city gates and allow their fellow soldiers into the city and pretty much ravish the city. Um, and so are we uh, at a point in history where we can look at certain events that are the kind of Trojan horse. And rather than looking at those events critically, we're still mesmerized by the pretty colors and the wooden structure of that horse. Uh, because, you know, truth be told, Stalin said, if I can take your history, I can take your country. And, you know, he's right. And, and so if Black America is a, is a country, um, are we asking ourselves, has our history been stolen from us 
And if so, by whom? And what is the state of Black America today? Uh, Uncle Tom, too, seeks to ask those questions and provide answer to those questions. And so uh, the, the biggest difference between part one and part two, uh, again, is that uh, for far too long, um, the Black conservative has been uh, framed by our adversaries yeah. and by white liberals. Uh, yes. This is where the term Uncle Tom comes from, sellout, bootlicker, this, that, and the other. And so to the masses, their understanding of the Black conservative has been framed by our political adversaries. And so what the original Uncle Tom did was it gave voice to the individuals who uh, have been considered uh, uh, as a kind of sellout by our, our, our political adversaries. And, and that's not to say that Black conservatives have been voiceless. I mean, Herman Cain, Alan West, Larry Elder, folks like yourself uh, have been speaking up for a long time. It's not as though Uncle Tom came along and and, and shone a light on you all. You all were, were doing quite fine before Uncle Tom. But what it did was uh, release, at least in cinematic form, um, who Black conservatives are. And it uh, opened up the conversation enough to where we could actually take our audience deeper and trust their intelligence to do so. I really love that analogy of the Trojan horse. And to be honest, you and I first connected around the whole homeschooling issue because you and your wife homeschool your beautiful children. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the reasons that I chose to homeschool was because uh, so many people tend to get our history either completely wrong or incomplete. And so that was one of the things that I really wanted to address in my own homeschooling journey. And one of the reasons why um, I have appreciated what Uncle Tom, one and two, has tried to do in setting the record straight around our history and um, those historical events. And, and it was hard to watch because, as I said in my monologue, um, I remember a very different America when I was growing up. Um, the black community was a lot different than it is depicted today. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that that has been a hard shift for me to uh, really see. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Um, we were actually able to dig up a lot more, uh, historically speaking, than what we show in Uncle Tom, uh, Uncle Tom Part 2, I should say. And it was so much information that we really had to kind of pick our story and table some things for maybe a third rendition of the film. Um, we wanted my, my aim in going into Uncle Tom Part Two was to really explore the concept of blackness and black culture. Uh, what comes into people's minds when they think of black culture, and what has shaped what comes into their minds when they think of black culture? Uh, it's my theory and my theory actually checked out uh, that what people think of when they think of black culture is manufactured by white progressives and white Marxists, uh, uh, more specifically speaking, in many cases, white Jewish Marxists. Uh, and that dates as far back as the so-called Harlem Renaissance, where you had a lot of these black artists who were uh, vying to uh, get a gig or to, to uh, score a deal in terms of a record deal or, or what have you. And they were willing to acquiesce and play the part of what uh, white progressive elites thought of black culture as being. And they were able to kind of play that part, play that role. And so if you think about it, a lot of white people in America who, you know, after all, um, white people are the, the majority uh, race in America, uh, who have never had any contact with an actual black person uh, are suddenly seeing so-called black culture through the medium of a record or, you know, right. uh, the silver screen or what have you. And so their ideas of what blackness is, is being shaped by, you know, shows like Amos and Andy, which was a, a, ra a popular radio show in the early 1900s, where you had these two white men who, uh, who did this kind of caricature of, yes. of black people and of black culture. And it was wildly popular. There were a lot of black people who did not like the fact that they were being caricatured in that way. And they would often write letters to Amos and Andy and to, you know, the uh, publications that were, you know, showing their cartoons, so on and so forth, saying, hey, this isn't representative of us. In fact, it's setting us back. 
And they were being slapped down, those who were complaining about it, not only by the white liberals, but also by groups like the NAACP who said, oh, don't worry about it. It's just, you know, it's all in, in good fun. And so it's interesting when you see groups like the NAACP actually backing um, these kind of uh, caricatures that have for a long time shaped what people think of black culture. And so as you get into the 1960s uh, with the civil rights movement, and then you get into the 1970s with um, black exploitation, you have yes. once again, this shaping of black culture. That's a complete all out lie. As you get into the nineties, you have the emergence of, of gangster rap, uh, which uh, celebrates uh, degeneracy, decadence, debauchery, violence, um, just futile living. And uh, as you get into the early 2000s and then to, you know, where we are now with the mumble rap culture, uh, uh, a culture that celebrates uh, popping pills and doing drugs and objectifying women, this has become what black culture is. And it's a far cry from our great grandfathers and great grandmothers. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll cap off what I'm saying by saying this. If you look at the average um, young black man between the ages of 20 and 30 today, you'll notice something strange. That is that the way they dress and carry themselves, their demeanor, their outlook on life is not much different than that of a middle schooler. Uh, the reason for that is this kind of arrested development, the uh, uh, resistance of, of growing up or, or the, the reluctancy to grow up, to take responsibility, to be a man, uh, to take life seriously. If you, if you rewind back to the 1940s and you look at young black men in that same age range between 20 and 30, you'll see this kind of dignity, this kind of, of, of integrity, this kind of, uh, of uh, just pride and self. And so what has happened between the 1940s and today? Uh, it was, again, my desire to go into these films, exploring these concepts and, and breaking down and dissecting what exactly has happened, what exactly has transpired. Now, we didn't really get all the way into that in this film, but I hope to do so in the next film, because I think it's an important conversation to have, because I believe that the, the most important thing about you is what you think about God, first and foremost. Yes. That's the most important thing about you. But the second most important thing about you is the stories you tell yourself and how you identify. If you identify mm -hmm. as someone who's oppressed, if you identify as somebody who comes from a lineage of being downtrodden, of never having made it or never have never having accomplished anything, then you will be you will be determined to not accomplish anything yourself. You will determine to believe that you are barbaric and 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 you know in need of socialist programs, so on and so forth. And so these are very important uh, concepts to tackle uh, because what it does is it gives specifically young black people um, it, it, it's allow it, it allows them to wake up and see that they are being targeted and propagandized for a political cause uh, where they will not benefit uh, in the end. You know, that's absolutely right, Chad. And and that was the difficulty that I think my husband and I had in watching Uncle Tom. It's always thought provoking. But as you said, um, some of the very themes that you brought up or things that I talked about in my monologue or that I wanted to address in my monologue, but uh, we talked specifically about the black exploitation films. Um, that was a, a very long conversation that we had the other night um, because both of us, uh, there's a movie theater in San Francisco we could, where we both grew up um, that was notorious for those films. And we talked about, you know, all the films, yeah. how many hours we clocked at that, at that movie theater <laughs> uh, watching a lot of those films. And as you mentioned, the, the culture and, and how different that shift is. And we talked a lot about rap music and the objectifying of women. Exactly. Uh, that came up. And we just talked about how not only is it men objectifying women, but women allowing themselves to be objectified and mm. participating in that. I'm not going to name any names, but there's a specific person that we were talking about um, in the way that uh, she dances, the way that she dresses, the way that she conducts herself. And um, you know, all of those kinds of things. Those are things that you never would have seen around yeah. the turn of the century. Those are things that right. you would, I mean, you know, um, and in my monologue, I talked about the community elders and how you would get talked to. You didn't have to be your mom or your aunt or anything right. like that. Any adult in the black community that saw you acting in a way that, um, would cause some sort of reputational harm. You got a lecture. And when yeah. you got home, 
they had already called your mom or your dad or whoever <laughs> and told them about it. And so you got another lecture when you got home. Right. So, yeah. you know, I'm old enough to remember that time. And so it's hard to see us. And I, I addressed this in the monologue also, um, just like you said, these animalistic urges and, and all of this kind of stuff that we're painted as that we can, and it's, it's being stoked as you said, by white liberals um, who, as we see, are pretty hypocritical with this whole Martha's Vineyard thing. Um, mm. You know, they say one thing, but when they have the opportunity to act on their beliefs, uh, they don't. And so to see this kind of fueled and stoked and, uh, and that kind of thing, and we are sort of, um, as you said, being propagandized. We're the puppets that, that you know, um, are, are being used for this sort of thing. Um, how do we make that shift to get back to the way that it was where we are policing ourselves and we embrace that moral code? And I know it's through the church and I know it's yeah. through being a Christian. As you said, everything is through the lens of God. I don't process anything through my political beliefs. I don't process anything through, you know, any of that. It all goes through God first. And yeah. that's really how I became a Christian was, uh, as I became a Christian or how I changed my political beliefs I was a diehard liberal in a diehard liberal family. Um, but once I became a Christian, started reading the word that changed my life and that changed mm. my worldview. So how do we get our community to stop looking at reparations to save us or affirmative action to save us or all of these other programs, as you said, and entities to save us and save ourselves Go back yeah. to a better way of living and, and a moral code um, that really exemplifies the hardworking, um, ethical, moral people that got us through slavery, that got us through civil rights, that got us through a lot of difficult times. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me first say that uh, what you talk about with regard to this kind of accountability amongst Black people that was true at the turn of the 20th century uh, as you know, that was true. Uh, also, when you were growing up, probably less so than the turn of the 20th century, but it was still relics of it there. And it was certainly true of when I was growing up. Uh, my immediate family had some vestiges of that kind of, of uh, accountability and responsibility culture that existed in the days of, of, of Booker T. Washington. So there's still some remnants of it there. Obviously, it's not as widespread, and it's certainly not uh, uh, the uh, common um, experience of the average black family today, if you know, if the public perception counts for anything. Um, but there's still some vestiges of, of it there. And I think it's important to really kind of hone in on that and to popularize that. The way that uh, this kind of decadent culture was able to become the mainstream amongst blacks was through the popularization of it. Through the black exploitation films, they were able to take the lowest common denominator of of slum life, of hood life, and make it, you know, place it on a pedestal and make it the mainstream. And so these young uh, kids who were coming up who had no connection uh, to, again, this this uh, this history that black people had uh, began to identify more with the what they were seeing on television and what was coming through their radio speakers then. Uh, what their grandmothers and grandfathers were up to. So they begin to identify more with this and that. And so I think it's important to to get into a place where we can begin to popularize uh, uh, values, not as being related to blackness, but as being related to just common decency. Um, because that's one of the the uh, uh, confusion, confusing parts of it. I mean, you have, for example, this PBS documentary that's coming out this week, called Making Black America. And they touch on some of the uh, the gains that Black people were making in the 20th century, but mm -hmm. they tie it to Blackness. When in reality, um, if you look at a lot of the correspondence of many of the Black business owners and entrepreneurs throughout the you know early, early to mid 1900s, they're talking about, especially with the Negro Business League, I mean, those yeah. a lot of that correspondence is available for people's public viewing. They're not talking about racial self-expression. They're just talking about taking advantage of opportunities. Uh, uh, the guy who started the um, 
the uh, the guy who started buying the buildings in Harlem, his name was Philip Payton Jr. If you look at his writings, he's not talking about, you know, uh, I'm doing this for race pride. He's he's saying, no, it's it's uh, it's an opportunity. You have an opportunity as a man in America to buy property. And that's what I'm doing. So he's basically uh, uh, taking his uh, his you know stake in, in being an American citizen more so than expressing uh, uh, blackness. And so. The thing is, this whole idea of self-worship uh, goes back, in my opinion, to the Garden of Eden, where Satan yeah. told Eve that you'll become like God, knowing good for evil or choosing for yourself what is good and evil. And sadly, that's where we are. And so as you get to today with this push for you know black girl magic and as black men and women, we're kings and queens and blackness and black this and black that and black everything. What they're doing is they're conflating uh, just decency to black excellence. And if you're not careful, you can easily kind of shift into this religion of blackness. Uh, when in reality, no, decency is universal and it transcends class and transcends what's in your bank account. You know, a lot of people like to attach poverty to crime. My dad comes from a very poor uh, community in Arkansas, but they weren't killing each other. They weren't robbing each other. Yeah. The reason being is because they had accountability and values. And so, again, values transcend income. There's people who are poor who have values. There's people who are rich who have values. There are people who are poor who lack values. There are people who are rich who lack values. And so we have to get rid of this language that anything, if a black person is doing it, they have to overcome the odds and, and all these different things. But, but to answer your question more specifically, there was a poll that came out in 2019 that uh, it was a, really a survey that Cato Institute did uh, that showed that 40 percent of black people in America favor capitalism. It showed that 62 percent of black people in America favor socialism. And so that 40 percent, although it's in the minority, stuck out to me because okay. if those numbers were to translate to how we vote, you'll have 60 percent of black people voting for Democrats, 40 percent of black people voting for Republicans. Um, that will uh, effectively end the Democrat Party as we know it. And I say that because 11% of the electorate is black voters. If you were to dip into that, uh, uh, if, if Republicans were to dip into that 11% by at least 23% of, of black voters at large, then the, the, the Democrat Party wouldn't really have a chance uh, to, to win at least a lot of these major elections. And so uh, the Democrat Party heavily depends on the black vote. We vote 90 plus percent for Democrats. And the reason for that is because black conservatives haven't quite figured out messaging. So if we were to really kind of uh, uh, hone in on and blow up this idea or this reality, I should say, that the Democrat Party is a party of socialism, then I think we can begin to kind of chip away at the Democrat party voting base as it relates to black voters, because, you know, if 40 percent of us uh, are more partial to capitalism, then that should at least translate in the black vote. So, yes, the churches, yes, you know, starting at home, but also messaging as well. We need to be more uh, impactful with with our messaging. I hope all that made sense. I know it's kind of all over the place with my no, yeah, that made absolute sense. Um, now, recently, Larry Elder invited how to be an anti-racist author, Ibram X. Kendi, to uh, be on his podcast. And Kendi responded by tweeting, I won't be joining your minstrel show, quote unquote. Uh, this exchange reminded some of the rivalry between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois um, a century ago. Uh, which Uncle Tom, too, leans heavily into. Uh, would you speak to the rivalry between uh, Booker T. Washington and Du Bois um, and its consequences for the Black community? Uh, certainly. And we. Uh, this is uh, one of the quote-unquote rivalries that we cover in the latter part of Uncle Tom, too. Um, so, you know, I do recommend people go and watch that because I think... Um, I think we do a pretty good job of, of juxtaposing the two. But the reason I say so-called rivalry is because it was more of a, of a case where Booker T. Washington was minding his own business and doing his own thing. And the antagonizer was really W.E.B. Du Bois. He was trying to sabotage and undermine and specifically called Booker T. Washington out by name in some of his writings. 
And so it was really that Du Bois was a kind of nuisance, whereas Booker T. Washington was the adult in the room who was really minding his own business and putting up numbers, uh, uh, tangibles and results. Um, Booker T. Washington um, was sent to Tuskegee uh, where he was asked to be the uh, principal, if you will, yeah. of the Tuskegee Institute. And, you know, he would take in these students who were the children of former slaves. And rather than having pity on them and feeling sorry for them, uh, he he preached that it was incumbent upon them to be men and women of virtue, to take responsibility, to cast down your bucket where you are, regardless of what your circumstances are. You need to be productive. You need to be people of integrity. You need to be honorable men and women. Um, these are the things that that he talked about. If you read Up From Slavery, uh, which is his autobiography. If you read My Larger Education, I mean, the dude was very uh, uh, inspirational, just mm -hmm. naturally inspirational. He was a man of God mm -hmm. and he was a simple man. Um, he wasn't looking for clout and prestige. A lot of that just kind of came to him uh, naturally because of the kind of person he was. He was naturally influential. Uh, du Bois, on the other hand, wasn't that. He was a man who, who was born into privilege uh, privileged enough to go to Harvard University. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was uh, certainly in the upper echelon, not only of Black America, but America at large. Mm -hmm. um, he got a sociology degree at Harvard. Um, this is around the time where Marxist ideology was certainly uh, being uh, pushed in the Ivy League schools, because you have to keep in mind, um, Marx's uh, uh, Communist Manifesto was published about 40 or 50 years prior to uh, Du Bois's having gone to Harvard. And so by that time, uh, that ideology had already caught fire in America's Ivy League institution. So uh, Du Bois was certainly um, in on that. By the time he graduated from Harvard, um, he started something called the Niagara Movement in, um, in I think, Buffalo, New York, which didn't do very well. Um, but when he was approached by Mary White Ovington, who was a white socialist, uh, about this idea of starting a, a larger um, uh, organization that would be backed by some wealthy white progressive industrialists, he certainly hopped to it. And so he became the, the black face of the NAACP. A lot of people think that the NAACP was started by Du Bois. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. the, the NAACP was started by white yes. socialists. And so... In order to popularize the movement, they needed to necessarily popularize Du Bois and some of his compatriots. Uh, so what they did was they specifically targeted and tried to sabotage the good name of Du Bois, or I'm sorry, of Booker T. Washington, uh, by calling him, you know, Uncle Tom and Sal and, and the other. Uh, now, the biggest, I guess, juxtaposition between Washington and Du Bois is capitalism or, or or free market utilization rather versus um, communism and socialism, where Washington taught that you need to take advantage of the free market, be productive, regardless of what people are saying about you. Uh, you'll gradually get into positions of power and influence. While Washington taught that, uh, du Bois taught, no, you need to protest, you need to demand everything, you need to demonstrate and, and get into politics because politics is how you're going to fix things. So there's a stark difference between uh, how they saw things. Um, so Washington was literally putting up numbers. I mean, literally the starting of Harvard, or not Harvard, but um, uh, Harlem was a direct result of Booker T. Washington's uh, Negro Business League, where a lot of men who were part of the Negro Business League were uh, realtors, and they went to Harlem and bought up a lot of property and were able to darken it, so to speak, in terms of, you know, buying up all these buildings and a lot of Black people began to move to Harlem. Um, so while it was Booker T. Washington's faction that started Harlem, uh, it was Du Bois's faction that ended up destroying Harlem, because over time, these hardworking black men and women who worked and lived in Harlem uh, had children. Their children were very comfortable. They lived very privileged lives. And that's when a lot of the kind of exploitation and mm -hmm. uh, propaganda began to roll in. And so the, these children who were very comfortable 
uh, began to take to the arts and, and self-expression. And they began to abandon that entrepreneurial spirit that their parents had. Mm -hmm. And they gave in to this kind of, of uh, decadence. Uh, we hear about the good side of the Harlem Renaissance, but we don't hear about the the, the bad side of it. And, and, and what followed was, again, the downfall of, of Harlem. So what Booker T. Washington built, Du Bois destroyed. And that's that's true on a microcosmic level when you're looking at Harlem, but it's certainly true uh, on a broader level, too, when you look at uh, cities like, you know, Baltimore, South Side yes. of Chicago, Detroit, so on and so forth. Sorry for no. the long windedness, by the way. Oh, no, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I love talking. I don't know that you and I have ever had a conversation that's <laughs> under an hour. I don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Uncle Tom, too, begins with you speaking about the lies being told to the Black community, uh, lies that leave Blacks bitter and angry. One of the most pernicious uh, is the statement that uh, African-Americans have more to fear from the police than from uh, criminals or from anything else they may encounter. How damaging has this lie been to the Black community? It's been very damaging. Um, the fact of the matter is the, the rise of Black Lives Matter is built on the back of lies. It, I mean, it's built on the basis of lies, I should say. When you look at people like Michael Brown, like George Floyd and all the others, uh, the people who have died, uh, not at the hands of police officers, but at the hands of their own ignorance, really, um, um, they weren't being exactly upright people in terms of getting themselves in trouble to begin with. And then once the police approach them, rather than complying and having their day in court, trying to put up a fight or trying to resist arrest, and they were basically gambling their own lives and, and died as a result. Uh, what Black Lives Matter did was it exploited those situations and, tr and made it specifically and strategically about race. Oh, these cops were white. They hated black people and they found themselves a Negro to, to kill in the street for no other reason than they're black. It's as if they're trying to say that these black people were just on their way to church. Police came out of nowhere and, and killed them. So that that's that's the narrative that they're pushing. And they became quite wealthy as a result. And not only that, but they they used it as a kind of uh, rallying cry uh, to get uh, most Americans to go along with their movement. And not only that, but a lot of churches, both black and white, uh, uh, fell for the Black Lives Matter narrative. Um, they began to put up signs and post to their social media and do all the things, have their little conferences and seminars about race and and we need to do something. We need to, you know, we can't just sit idly by. You know, uh, black people's houses are burning down, and 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 you you have to say Black Lives Matter because you know theirs are theirs are the ones whose houses are on fire. And they, they began to use these kind of analogies to justify this nonsense. Uh, but it's all based on lies. It's all sensationalism. It's all emotionalism based on 100% absolute lies. If you look at the actual numbers of the number of black people who are dying at the hands of police officers on average uh, uh, per year, I, I think it's less than 20 or, or less than 20 or 10 or something like that. And uh, when you look at unarmed, you know, black men dying at the hands of police officers, and then even of those few people who are, if you look at the facts and the totality of the situation surrounding those deaths, you'll find that the black individuals weren't exactly doing what they were supposed to do in terms of just living decent lives. And so I say that to say this, to answer your question specifically about what kind of effect does that have specifically on the black community, or even more specifically, I'll add to black youth, is that it instills in their minds the spirit of paranoia, the spirit of, uh, of uh, otherness, of feeling as if you're separate from the larger American family, um, that you're targeted and that there's a mark on your head for no other, other reason than the fact that you're a black person. And so this uh, 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 narrative is poisoning the minds of black youth to make them bitter and to make them angry. Uh, those children will grow up paranoid. Uh, and, it, and it's a shame because really the individuals who are propagandizing this message to them are doing it for votes because they know that there's strength in numbers. Yes. They know that um, that they can depend on these uh, young people when they come of age to vote for uh, the people they wish to have in power. 
And so they're selling you out for your vote. They're trying to extract out of you your vote. And the casualty is your dignity. The casualty is your well-being, both uh, uh, physically and mentally. Uh, and so it's a shame because if you ask the average black person whether racism exists, they'll probably tell you yes. And you ask them this follow-up question. Well, if that's true, then, then, then please tell me your own experience with racism. Eight times out of 10, they'll proceed to tell you something that has more to do with their own insecurity and paranoia than an actual experience of racism. And I've tried this. I've asked many Black people who say that America is a racist country to tell me about your own experiences of racism. And I get things like, oh, I was driving through Oklahoma at night and the police pulled me over because I'm Black. And my question is, well, how, how do you believe the police officers saw through your window when you're driving at night? And of course, they can't answer these questions. But again, um, um, they what this narrative does, what this mentality does is it causes you to see that it cause it distracts you from seeing the obvious and it causes you to chalk everything up to racism, even though most of the situations have nothing to do with racism whatsoever. So it basically has this kind of uh, retarding effect, uh, this kind of uh, intoxicating effect. You're, you're operating not under a state of sobriety, but of intoxication. And you're intoxicated by a narrative that causes you uh, to not see the reality for what it is. And so, and so, yes, it's had a very negative effect on the Black community. And it's a shame that these Black race hustlers continue to peddle the messaging, uh, some of them knowing the damage that it's causing, others of them not so much. Uh, but even more infuriating is the fact that it's become uh, uh, part of curriculum in American public yes. schools. And so it's enshrined uh, and codified in our curriculum. And not only that, but it's constantly peddled day in and day out by mainstream journalism. And so it has this kind of, of uh, optic of reputability and fact, when in reality, it's not factual at all. And so there's a lot of deconstructing that needs to take place on the part of Black conservatives, because, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely um, facing a, a large giant, a very steep uphill battle and trying to undo the all out lies that's coming from us in a very, in a, or coming to us in a very inundative way by most mainstream institutions. Now, if there is one criticism that could be lobbed at Uncle Tom too, it's that there is something that could be considered the occasional tone of being anti-Black. For example, Jesse Lee Peterson said that, quote, Black people have lost character. Look at all the neighborhoods, uh, the communities, the cities where Blacks have taken over. When they moved into these areas, they were very nice. But by the time Blacks are done with them, crime, homelessness. They don't paint their homes. They don't clean up. Um, it's just become a mess, end quote. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm open to that criticism, but I mean, at the there, there comes a time when you have to uh, harden your speech a little bit because the fact of the matter is, traditionally, conservatives, particularly Black conservatives, uh, for whatever reason, I have a theory for what the reason is, but I'll just say for whatever reason, uh, tend to approach conversations regarding culture and race uh, very softly um, because they understand that there's a lot of emotionalism that Blacks have. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, um, our approach as conservatives have been to kind of treat people with kid gloves and to not uh, call out the kind of elephant in the room, so to speak. If you look at liberals by comparison, Black liberals by, by comparison, they're very, very bombastic and very, uh, uh, I, I would say, reckless with how they talk. And it gets them a lot of brownie points. If you look, for example, at the Revolt Summit that Candace Owens was a part of, and you look at her demeanor. Now, don't get me wrong, Candace didn't approach that conversation uh, at all in a meek way. Not, I mean, me, the word meek, by the way, is a, is a, is a good and positive word. Yeah. Um, but I'm just saying what a lot of people think of when they hear the word meek. Right. Um, 
So she didn't approach the work, the, that conversation in a, in a, in a I, was, I should say the better word is timid. She didn't approach the conversation in a timid way. She didn't, uh, she, she wasn't, you know, um, uh, weak in how she approached that discussion. She was very confident. She was very strong. She was very meek, I would say, uh, uh, using the, the, the word for what it actually is. Um, and she was on top of her facts. If you look at, on the other hand, people like T.I., he's sitting up there cussing. He's trying yeah. to make fun of her. He's using ad homonyms. He's trying to sound intellectual. And every time he speaks, the crowd rises to their feet, clapping and, and you know, high-fiving and, and just acting a complete fool. For whatever reason, people respond to that. Now, does this justify uh, the, uh, the, the inclination that some black conservatives might have to say, well, you know what, let's fight, fight fire with fire and let's be uh, reckless with how we speak? No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, the reason I stand by what Jesse Lee Peterson said is because I wouldn't I wouldn't attach what he's saying so much to blackness as much as I will to a shifting of a mindset. Uh, Uncle Tom, too, talks about the shifting of a mindset. When you look at, again, Booker T. Washington, uh, uh, encouraging and challenging black people, black men in particular, to cast down your bucket where you are to be men of honor, men of integrity, uh, to be productive, regardless of what your circumstances are. Uh, you can read Booker T. Washington quotes all day long and just be inspired because he's telling you to to uh, to basically harness this peace that surpasses understanding, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, to be productive in spite the odds, in spite your circumstances. That's what he's talking about. That was what he taught. That was what uh, uh, George Washington Carver taught, and that is what. Dr. J.H. Jackson taught a name that a lot of people are un unfamiliar with, unfortunately. Um, there was a kind of rivalry between Dr. J.H. Jackson, who was popular in his day among black churchgoers, and Martin Luther King, who wasn't. He was young and still wet behind the years, and he wanted to take uh, the black church into a direction of social of the social gospel. Whereas J.H. Jackson believed in reformed theology, believed in the... Um, the onus being on the individual to repent and turn to God, regardless of what everybody else is doing. So that's the difference between Dr. J.H. Jackson and Martin Luther King. Now, the reason I bring them up is because J.H. Jackson was born the same year that Booker T. Washington died, 1915. And he died in 1990, the same year that I was born. And so in his life between 1915 and 1990, he, in a sense, kind of carried the baton if you will, of, of uh, Booker T. Washington. And uh, he became the president of the National Baptist Convention. Uh, Martin Luther King, fresh out of college, who believed in the social gospel, who was very much Marxist in, the, in his ideology, especially when it came to economics, sought to oust Dr. J.H. Jackson from his post as the president of the National Baptist Convention. He was unsuccessful in doing so because Black churchgoers overwhelmingly supported Jackson. And so what they did in response was ultimately start the SCLC, which was meant to be a, a kind of rival to the National Baptist Convention. Again, this is history that we're not taught in our schools. And so uh, uh, whenever they started the SCLC and whenever the white progressive media began to parade or began to uh, rain down this this publicity and this positive publicity on Martin Luther King and they kind of made him this kind of uh, of leader in their magazines in their newspapers in the way that they covered him like he was kind of a, a thrust to the top of the pedestal uh, where it seemed that nobody else was talking about the injustices of Jim Crow Jay Jackson was talking about the injustices of Jim Crow, and he was doing practical things to fight it. And a lot of these Jim Crow laws were falling off the books. They were being repealed not only at the municipal level, but also at the state level across the South. And it didn't have any kind of Marxist tinge to it. But what the progressive media did was it made Martin Luther King seem like the only one fighting it. And, and all of the credit went to Martin Luther King. And so I say that to say this. One of the interesting things about the rhetoric of the civil rights movement is it was such a far cry from what Booker T. Washington was talking about, where Booker T. Washington was talking about casting down your bucket where you are and be a man. 
Martin Luther King, what did he say? Well, we can't be men. We haven't been able to we haven't been able to be men. If you look at that interview that he did on NBC, where he's standing at the podium of of uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, he says we haven't been able to be men because of our circumstances. Uh, we we've been redlined. We've been you know we can't drink at the same drinking fountains. We can't ride on the front of the bus. We haven't been able to be men. And if you look at Abernathy, if you look at uh, uh, Jesse Jackson, if you look at all the others who are part of that social gospel movement, they were saying the same thing. We can't be men. And it's incumbent upon the system and the government and public policy to change. And so what they did was they caused this kind of shift in the way that mm -hmm. we see ourselves. And it was a very masterful play. Now, it can be argued as to whether they knew what they were doing or not. But all I can talk about is the effects. What were the what were the net results of the shifting of rhetoric? As you kind of got into the 70s, particularly in the South, these young black men whose fathers and grandfathers started plumbing companies, electrical companies and and mechanic shops and so on and so forth. Those businesses died with their fathers and grandfathers because what they chose to do, many of them were to become intellectuals and take Black, you know, uh, studies and at their colleges or to become militants and join the Black Panther Party or to kind of get swept away with the culture because you had this demoralization thing happening in the late 60s going into the 70s that not only affect, affected Black culture, but affected American culture at large with the emergence of second wave feminism and uh, the free love movement and the hippie yeah. movement and the anti-war movement. All of these young folks were rebelling against the adult generation of their day. They didn't want the uh, kind of, you know, stuck up middle class family oriented, you know, culture that the adult generation had. They wanted something different because they thought that having something different would liberate them. And so you did have a shifting of culture that was a direct result of a shifting of mindset. And so you got the uh, the. Uh, tearing down of the communities, the graffiti, the trash, the lack of painting houses, the lack of taking responsibility of your culture. And so there's a lot of nuance and complexity to what Jesse Lee Peterson's talking about, but it's true. And we have to we have to face the reality of its truthfulness because for far too long, what the statisticians do, what the data analysts do, what the social scientists do when it comes to race is they they focus on systems. They focus on policy. Very rarely do they focus on cultural truths that give rise to a lot of the disparities that we talk about. And so because we're not willing to, 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 to face the facts of how culture affects livelihood, and we think everything comes from and is shaped by the system, that takes, off the, that takes away the incentive and the responsibility on the individual to be a decent, productive citizen. And that's the problem with much of the Black community today is the lack of responsibility and taking uh, and being accountable for your own life. It's the reason why 62% of Black Americans prefer socialism to capitalism. Socialism, in the socialist uh, 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 worldview, somebody takes care of me. It's from each according to their yeah. ability to each according to their need. In the capitalist worldview, it's an incumbent upon you to take responsibility of your own life and the extent to which you're willing to put in work, you'll get a return off of the work that you put in. It's this kind of meritocracy that we're talking about. So there's a difference between the two worldviews. Why is it that Black Americans are the only ethnic group in the country who has a more favorable view of socialism than capitalism? Yeah. Why is that? And so again, we have to we have to look at the 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 facts of the matter. And the, the more we continue to shy away from the elephant in the room, and, and and make everything about what the Republican Party and Democrat Party are willing to do for us, what public policy is willing to do for us, what systems are willing to do for us, rather than taking the responsibility to do for ourselves, we're going to continue having these conversations and not get anywhere as a result. I think that's a great answer because I, as I address in the monologue, I've, I've kind of seen that shift just in my own experience. If you're just joining us, our guest, this segment has been Chad Jackson. He is the star of Uncle Tom 2, the newly released documentary from Larry Elder and Justin Malone. Uh, how can people see Uncle Tom 2? How can people follow Uncle Tom 2 online? How can they follow you online? 
tell us more. Yeah, so uh, Uncle Tom can be viewed now at UncleTom.com. Um, there you'll find Uncle, Uncle Tom as well as Uncle Tom 2. Uh, the film, of course, we're talking about right now is Uncle Tom 2. Um, but don't let that name deceive you. Uncle Tom 2 is truly a film that stands on its own. You don't need to see part one before you can watch part two. Um, and not only that, but a lot of the reviews that we're getting back from folks is that Uncle Tom 2 is a superior film to part one, which is saying a lot because part one was a was a, a highly acclaimed uh, film. It was a hit. And we're quite proud of that work. Uh, but part two takes you deeper. And we we um, there are no sacred cows in part two. Um, but to the extent that we address some of the sacred sacred or the traditionally the traditional sacred cows is not done so in malice It's not done for the sake of being provocative it's done because there again comes a time where you have to look at things objectively and and look at everything from a broad scale where we went wrong and how we can um how we can strive to make it better uh, if nothing else and not constantly being taken advantage of or bamboozled by whatever social justice movement comes down the pipeline and so Yes, you can you can find Uncle Tom too at UncleTom.com. You can follow me uh, across all social media platforms at Chad O. Jackson. So and I'm gratified to hear that there might be a part three because maybe I won't end up on the cutting room floor this time. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was no, we definitely always... we definitely gotta get we definitely gotta get you into the uh, <laughs> into the chair. We tried to get you uh, for part too, but we can never get you to the studio. I know reason. that was right after <laughs> Snowmageddon. We yeah, just yeah. moved to Texas and that was just a crazy experience. So right, right. I'm hoping to, to get in that chair because yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, you talk about, you tackle some really, really thought provoking topics. So it's been, it's been great to talk to you and uh, it's been great to, to see the, the trajectory that this film has had. Awesome. Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully you have me back. <laughs> I will. I will. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Now comes that part of the show where we bring DK in. Come on, DK. Hello. Well, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. What was your thought about that whole thing? What, what did you take away from that? Well, I took a lot away from the interview and, and the film, Uncle Tom, too. It made a lot of very important points. Had a great cast. Um, of course, it had um, our favorite Alan West. Yes. Carol Swain. Yeah. And a, um, and the, a guy I, I saw for the first time. You said his name was uh, Body Beecham. Yeah. Body Beecham. Yeah. He's yeah. a very impressive pastor. Yes. So, but um, I'm wearing my Yankee shirt. You're you wearing your it. your what shirt? Yankees. Oh, Yankees. No, we're not talking about the Yankees today. Yeah, I wanted oh, to mention... you're talking about Judge? Yeah, that... so I wanted to mention that Aaron Judge hit number Aaron 62 Judge. last night. He's adopted. Night. He's an adopted kid. His, his parents were there to watch him do it. It was a very proud moment, especially for us in the Northeast. And I wanted to mention that in light of Uncle Tom, too, because there's a big issue that comes up in films like Uncle Tom too, is the difference between equality and equity. Yeah. Like when um, our vice president said that the hurricane relief for Ian will be based on equity instead of need, yes. we, we start to see a pattern that equality, which is what you and I grew up on, giving Blacks the same opportunities as everyone else, has been replaced by um, equity. It's not a matter of having the same chances in life, it's it's a matter of having the government force the same outcome in life. And that's why people like me appreciate sports so much, you know. It's not a matter of saying Aaron Judge hit 62, so everybody on the team needs to have 62 home runs on their record. Right. It's a matter of everybody on the team getting a chance at bat. So maybe maybe they'll hit 40, maybe they'll hit 70. So I just wanted to make that distinction between equity and equality in terms of sports and Uncle Tom, too. Well, and I mentioned his adoptive status because, you know, if 
this is the first or only episode of Acons you've ever watched. You don't know that I'm an adoptive mother of two. So I felt that that was really important too, because in the black community, we need, we, we are disproportionately in the system, in the foster care system, but we need more black parents to step up more parents in general, but in the black community to be able to step up and adopt those who are in the system um, and, and making that more accessible to more families who want to make that a reality. And so the fact that his parents played a strong role in encouraging him, uh, I think is, is also important to make. Absolutely. So that's another episode of African American conservatives. I'm Marie. I'm DK. Please join us next time at African American conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. At African American Conservatives, we appreciate your support and we encourage you to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you find us on social media. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter. Uh, Bright News Media, uh, brightnewsmedia.com is also. Uh, they have a YouTube channel where you can find a lot of the Acons videos, the Acons branded videos. You can find us there as well as your favorite podcasting platform. So please do follow us, like us, uh, subscribe to our podcast. It's all free. But if you should decide that you like what we do and you want to have a more active role in that, you can certainly support us as our friend Ron did last week, got a new uh, subscriber, a paid subscriber. We appreciate him. Um, and so you can do that at anchor.fm forward slash ACONS, A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support. And that's with our thanks.